you know, what is schizophrenia? There have certainly been you know, many different people who have tried to put that into words and define it through the years. In modern times, we often refer to the DSM, the DSM-5, and we talk about different symptoms of schizophrenia as a sort of way to explain to people what that is. So uh, the types of symptoms that we see in schizophrenia fall under a umbrella of psychosis or psychotic symptoms. Those include things like hallucinations. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest today is Joe Pierre, MD. He's a unit chief, part of the adult inpatient psychiatry service at the Langley Porter Psychiatric Hospital and Clinics. This is all part of the University of California, UCSF. So Joe, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. If you would tell me about your background and what kind of specifics are you working on today in terms of mental health and psychiatrics? Sure. So I guess started my career as an undergraduate majoring in biology and neuroscience. I've always had an interest in how the brain works and that sort of thing. But when I was in college, I was less interested in bench research and you know, biology. It's a lot of pipetting back and forth all day long. And I really was more interested in working with uh, with people and decided, well, sort of deliberated between going to graduate school in psychology or going to medical school for psychiatry. And I ended up picking the latter in part because I thought that uh, medications and pharmacotherapy is an important part of treatment and also because I'm interested in providing care to people with severe or serious mental illness. And so I've now been a psychiatrist doing clinical work for over 20 years and always worked in the academic setting. So in addition to my clinical work, I have an interest in various topics related to psychiatry and psychosis in particular. And in recent work, the years, much of my academic work has focused on conspiracy theories as well. And that's been a very a timely topic over the past several years. Well, I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, schizophrenia. There's a series that I'm you know, starting on to interview. So would it be okay to speak about that? Of course, yes. All right. Well, if you would tell me about what you see in that world and what are some, uh, you know, how do people get diagnosed? So let's start there. Yeah. Well, I will say that schizophrenia to me has always been one of the most intriguing and challenging disorders in psychiatry. I often refer to a quotation by Mark Vonnegut, who is the son of Kurt Vonnegut, and is uh, currently, I still, I think, still a practicing pediatrician in Boston. He's written a couple different books. And he wrote a memoir about his travels during uh, his teenage years, where he says something to the effect of cancer, hypertension, diabetes. These are all illnesses that we get. Schizophrenia, on the other hand, is something that we are. And that's always been one of the fascinating things about the illness to me, that it really affects sort of the most essential part of who we are as, as people. So the philosopher in me is interested in that. To answer your question about 
you know, what is schizophrenia. There have certainly been you know, many different people who have tried to put that into words and define it through the years. In modern times, we often refer to the DSM, the DSM-5, and we talk about different symptoms of schizophrenia as a sort of way to explain to people what that is. So uh, the types of symptoms that we see in schizophrenia fall under a umbrella of psychosis or psychotic symptoms. Those include things like hallucinations of any of the five senses, so hearing things, seeing things, smelling things that, you know, that aren't there. Delusional thinking, which is probably my sort of favorite sy symptom, if you will, and, and the one that I'm most interested in, in understanding and writing about. Delusions are fixed false beliefs, so beliefs that we hold very tightly despite there being a good counter evidence that this is, you know, the belief is not correct or, or true. And so you can see from those two types of symptoms, which are sometimes called positive symptoms, meaning that they're symptoms, kind of extra experiences that most of us don't have, that these are examples of psychosis, which is loosely defined as some break in, in one's appreciation of reality. In schizophrenia, there's also two other types of symptoms that we see. One is called disorganization, which refers to the way we think uh, and how that's manifested in both speech and behavior. So disorganized thinking is sort of jumbled or confused. And one, one concept that one is thinking about doesn't necessarily link to another in the way that we typically think, that most of us typically think. And then negative symptoms, which in contrast to positive symptoms, represent a deficit or a loss. And the types of deficits that we see in schizophrenia include things like loss of motivation, drive, our ability to enjoy activities, our desire for social contact, and those sorts of things. So when you say schizophrenia is something that some people are, especially since it seems to develop later in life, 20s, 30s, maybe later? Well, that's a good question and a good ob observation. Now, you know, to be clear about that, there are less common or rare cases of childhood onset schizophrenia. There's also cases of people who develop it very late in life. Uh, you're right, though, that uh, the the biggest part of the bell curve, if you will, I mean, it's not really a bell curve, the, the biggest part of the curve is typically in late adolescence, early adulthood, usually a bit earlier in men than it is for women. So when I'm quoting Mark Vonnegut and saying schizophrenia is something we are, it's it, when I'm referring, what he's referring to, and what I like about that quotation is that it really changes the essential part of who we are as a person. So, you know, when we have hypertension, high blood pressure, we're still pretty much the same person. Just talking to you, I wouldn't know that you had high blood pressure. But when one develops schizophrenia, it really affects this sort of core part of our identity that would be very noticeable in most cases in talking to someone. Does anyone have any idea on why it onsets at different ages? Oh, well, you know, in uh, in medicine and science, as you can imagine, there are many, many, many different ideas. There's sort of a running joke in psychiatry, though, that if we knew precise pathophysiological mechanisms, then they would cease to be psychiatric disorders, so we'd hand them over to our neurological colleagues. So this, uh, what, basically what I'm suggesting is, you know, on a certain level, we don't really know. On another level, though, there's many different theories and evidence to support some of those theories. So, for example, there it has been shown that there are you know palpable or visible brain changes that occur over the years when schizophrenia takes root that affects things like the volume of gray and white matter in the brain. 
it's thought that this might reflect a an aberrant process of what we call synaptic pruning, the number of connections that neurons have with each other. That kind of pruning is normal in adolescence. But in schizophrenia, there's some evidence that that happens to an excessive degree. So that's one of many sort of pieces of evidence that adds to this schizophrenia puzzle. So I don't want to suggest that that's the only cause or that's the only explanation. There's a lot of other explanations as well related to genetics and neurochemical evidence. But that's one potential reason why the onset uh, tends to occur at that time. And going back to what I said about schizophrenia, sometimes starting much earlier or much later, I would make clear from the onset that the person that invented the word schizophrenia more than 100 years ago at this point, named Eugen Bleuler, he very clearly conceptualized that schizophrenia was not a single illness, that it's a collection of different, you know, what in, in genetics, what we call phenotypes, that is expressions, symptomatic expressions that might have many, many different causes. And that's one reason why we don't, for example, have one pathophysiological explanation for schizophrenia, because schizophrenia is not one thing. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Hmm. Okay. How do people get diagnosed? Is it after they have like a psychotic break? Or is it a gradual buildup symptoms and friends and family members say, hey, you should go see a psychiatrist? Like, how does it happen? Well, that's a great question. So called diagnosis in psychiatry, we do diagnose based on what we call syndromes. That is based on constellations of symptoms that tend to cluster together. In psychiatry, we don't, for the most part, you know, use blood tests or brain scans or EEGs. We use those tools to rule out meaning you know, make sure that it's not a medical, a general medical or a neurological disorder, but the psychiatric disorders themselves are diagnosed based on these constellation of symptoms, you know, which is similar to other types of medical disorders like migraine headache, right? We don't do a brain test or lab test to di diagnose migraine. We diagnose that based on someone's presenting symptoms. Now, the interesting thing there is that it's pretty well known that across the world, there is something called a duration of untreated psychosis, meaning that people will develop the types of symptoms that would uh, qualify or meet criteria for a diagnosis of schizophrenia, but it often takes as much as two years, or I should say on average about two years for someone to be diagnosed. So often diagnosis is late and occurs after someone has developed sort of sufficient symptoms to make the diagnosis. Additionally, over the past couple decades, there's been intense research trying to kind of reverse that and look at, are there predictors of psychosis uh, or schizophrenia? Because as you're suggesting, uh, usually when people develop schizophrenia, for many years, they develop other more subtle signs that things aren't going well. You know, it could be anxiety, it could be 
uh, mood symptoms. It could be functional performance at school. And so there's a lot of interest in trying to see if we can be better at pinpointing who what might go on to develop a psychotic disorder. So there's definitely a lot of interest in getting better at reducing the duration of untreated psychosis and maybe even moving towards preventative efforts. Have you seen people, quote unquote, grow out of schizophrenia or do something, you know, either through drugs, diet, lifestyle, et cetera, so they pretty much have no symptoms or problems anymore? Or once someone has it, it's going to recur regardless to various extremes, no matter what they do? Well, going back to the idea that schizophrenia is not one thing, it is definitely recognized that there are some people who would you know, qualify for a diagnosis of schizophrenia and then might have symptomatic improvement and no longer meet those criteria. In fact, there are a couple different disorders in the DSM that are what we might call schizophrenia spectrum disorders, but have a shorter clinical course. So there's something, for example, called brief psychotic disorder, where people can have acute, that is, you know, short-term psychotic symptoms that just resolve within a month. Then there's people who have psychotic symptoms meeting symptomatic criteria for schizophrenia who have symptoms for months on end, but then those symptoms resolve within six months. So those are some examples of, we don't actually call either of those schizophrenia, but they are these sort of psychotic disorders that superficially look like schizophrenia and then tend to resolve. And likewise, within schizophrenia, even if someone has symptoms for at least six months or beyond, there are certainly people that do have spontaneous recovery. So yes, there's a lot of heterogeneity under this umbrella that we call schizophrenia or the even bigger umbrella that we call psychosis. Yeah. What is some of the heterogeneity? Like, um, Is there like a paranoid dominant schizophrenia or a depressive dominant or a cognitively impaired dominant form? What does it look like clinically? Yeah. So unfortunately, so, so when I say the, the heterogeneity I'm referring to is related to clinical course. You know, again, some people might respond more spontaneously. You know, back in the 1960s, 1970s, there was great interest in subtyping schizophrenia and saying, as you're suggesting, there might be a paranoid subtype or there might be a disorganized subtype. That was really abandoned because it was noted that those subtypes weren't really all that valid in terms of patients, you know, clearly falling under the category of one, but not another. The reality is there was quite a bit of symptomatic overlap and the subtypes weren't felt to be very predictive of things like treatment response or spontaneous recovery. So the heterogeneity that I'm referring to isn't so much what the patient looks like so much as what happens over time and what the clinical course is. Well, what does happen over time? Are there aspects, some of the symptoms, do they become more dominant than others and others recede and become less apparent? I mean, referring back to the heterogeneity, the answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no. I would say that there's a typical pattern other than, and I should mention that as a psychiatrist, as you might imagine, I tend to see the people who don't have spontaneous recoveries. So people who are enrolled in clinical care you know, for years at a time, that's sort of a biased sample of the people who often need chronic care. So based on that sort of subset of schizophrenia, those people tend to have chronic symptoms that wax and wane over time so that they have discrete psychotic episodes where they're more acutely or more floridly psychotic, but then also more sort of quiescent periods where symptoms might be better controlled. Usually when I'm talking about this population, those that distinction is usually based on whether or not someone is on medications, in treatment, you know, in receiving psychotherapy, in care. So certainly there are people who can you know, be in psychiatric treatment, can have symptomatic improvement, 
and can remain relatively stable over time. What we often see, though, is that people uh, sometimes stop taking their medications. Comorbid drug addiction is, is certainly a great confounder, so that sometimes people have uh, relapses in the setting of drug use. Also, you know, trauma or life stressors can be exacerbating factors. So there's really no one set course. Um, is it degenerative? Like, let's say I get it when I'm 28 and you know I have episodes every six months and now I'm 58. And I've had this thing for, you know, decades. Do I look any different? Are the psychoses deeper, longer, different, et cetera? Is my health degenerating? Because, you know, is each psychotic episode uh, making my health worse, for instance? Like, what do you notice? Longitude? Yeah. Uh, another good question and, and another thing that's been looked at, you know, pretty intensely for, 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 for decades, really. So, you know, I mentioned that there was this person, Uygulin Bloiler, that coined the term schizophrenia. Well, prior to Bloiler... There was another man named Emil Kreitlin, and his word for what we now call schizophrenia was dementia precoce, which you know, is a German, but it basically means a precocious dementia. And so what Kreitlin observed 100 years ago was that there is a neurocognitive component and that there often sometimes is neurocognitive impairment both early in the course of illness as well as over time. And over the past couple decades now, I think there's been a lot more focus, interest, attention on those neurocognitive symptoms, in part because they often are the most functionally impairing, and also because our treatments for those types of symptoms are few and far between. And so there's a lot of effort in drug development, but also in terms of psychotherapy to see if there's ways that we can improve those neurocognitive symptoms. There is also, as, as you kind of alluding to, there is some evidence that psychosis is sort of toxic to the brain. That is, the more intense uh, acute episodes of psychosis, that that can have a deleterious effect over time. Now, that's not a slam dunk finding. There's some controversy over to what extent that, that is true, but that's certainly something that uh, that has been discussed in, in the literature uh, with some evidence supporting that that may indeed be the case. Yeah, like when someone has a psychotic episode, does it take time to quote-unquote heal mentally and has anyone uh, determined what damage is caused either, you know, acutely or long-term? Well, I'm going to stay away from the word damage because uh, going, going back to my joke about, you know, psychiatry handing off disorders to neurology, there's not, there's not really a brain test where I could say, look, you know, you have damage or you have some insult to this particular area of your brain. Um, what I will say with regard to functionality is that schizophrenia in its chronic and severe state uh, tends to be extremely fun functionally impairing. So that most of the patients that I've treated over the course of my career are not people who are employed because they're unable to be employed. They're not people who are generally living independently and you know taking care of themselves. There are significant functional deficits. And in part, just because of that over time, oftentimes there's not, we don't see, we certainly aren't necessarily seeing improvements. Now, you know, to what extent people are you know, worsening over time, that depends on the individual. But in as much as someone is functionally impaired for years on end, uh, that itself can have an overall you know, negative impact on the course of the illness. Well, what have you observed? What happens to someone after they've had more and more psychotic episodes and as they've had this condition for years and then decades? How are they different after that versus when it first started happening? 
Well, it's not necessarily that they're different, is that they just are in this sort of stuck in this loop of chronic relapsing symptoms and relatively poor functioning. Now, again, I want to make clear that there are other patients who are able to have either spontaneous recoveries or good responses to treatment where they are able to regain that functionality. But certainly there are some people who just tend to have these uh, chronic uh, relapsing, remitting symptoms over time. And that can just, you know, continue. Is another thing worth mentioning is something called the mortality gap. There is on average in the US and, and in most other parts of the world a 20-year mortality gap where people with schizophrenia as well as other forms of severe mental illness tend to die about two decades earlier than their counterparts. And the reason there is, you know, quite being varied. Some of that could be things that are inherent to the illness itself. Part of it has to do with lack of access to good medical care, a, a number of different factors. Um, when people die uh, that have schizophrenia, do they usually die while they're having a psychotic episode or are they dying for other reasons that, again, have, seem to have nothing to do with the schizophrenia? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the more mortality gap, the causes of death are pretty much the same as the general population. And so that uh, underscores this idea that a lot of that gap is explained by lack of access to medical care. That said, I would also mention that there is, roughly speaking, a suicide completed suicide rate is somewhere in the neighborhood of five to ten percent of people who have schizophrenia. So that is, uh, you know, overrepresented in the severe uh, mentally ill population. So that's uh, certainly an important factor as well. In contrast, what is the typical suicide rate? for you know the whole population, I mean, the country's population or the world population. You mentioned 5 to 10% for you know serious mental illness, but what's the background number? That you uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I don't know that number offhand, but it's you know quite a bit less than 1%. Yeah. So this is a major signal. It's five times in March at least. Absolutely. Like. Absolutely. You also mentioned that schizophrenia is, is a cluster, I guess, disorders. Uh, so the main ingredients in the recipe, has anyone discovered that? You mean from a sort of physiological level or, or how do you mean? So you've mentioned that uh, schizophrenia is not just one condition. So the scientists that said this, the scientists that say this, um, what is the recipe of the ingredients of schizophrenia? Um, and how, does, how do they know that it's a cluster of diseases instead of just one? Well... I guess the way I would a answer that is, is again, just to say that when we talk about these clusters of diseases, we're talking about their, I already mentioned, you know, their overall course, but also things like response to treatment. So for example, with antipsychotic medication, which is one of the mainstay, you know, parts of therapy or, or treatment of people with schizophrenia, you know, some people, maybe as many as, you know, 30 to 50%, uh, do very well on antipsychotics and have significant symptom reduction. On the other hand, that other half or you know, 30 to 50% on the other side, oftentimes don't respond very well to antipsychotics at all. So in a way, that's a sort of biomarker that tells us that this type of medication can help this kind of patient. But in this patient, despite having superficially similar symptoms, they don't respond. Now, we don't know at this point in time, what that means on a physiologic level. You know, why does one person respond to antipsychotics and another doesn't? Or why do some people respond to one antipsychotic but not another? You know, I often compare the treatment of schizophrenia to the treatment of hypertension, where when when I'm a, if I'm treating someone with high blood pressure, 
I don't know on an individual level what the cause of that person's high blood pressure is. Based on treatment guidelines, I might start that person on a specific kind of blood pressure medication, let's say a thiazide diuretic, a so-called water pill. And if that doesn't work so well, I might move on to a second medication. And the, the second medication in most cases will be a different class, a different type of medication. So that speaks to the heterogeneity of the entity that we call you know, high blood pressure, hypertension. In schizophrenia, though, there, there might be some people who would argue against this, but I think as a general rule, we can think of the vast majority of medications we have to treat schizophrenia as roughly the same class of medication. So what we think they're doing in the brain is more or less the same thing. Now, there are some exceptions. There are drugs like clozapine, which seem to be particularly efficacious in people who don't respond to other meds. But for the other meds, they're really more similar than they are different. So if we compared that to what I was saying about a doctor who treats hypertension, it would be like if I was treating hypertension and the only class of medications I had were ACE inhibitors or calcium channel blockers. And that you can then imagine why the good rates of response would be so limited if that was the only tool in my toolkit, uh, as it were. So that's one example of the kind of heterogeneity and what we understand about it in schizophrenia. We just, we were not real close, unfortunately, to being able to say, oh, well, you know, the reason that it behaves differently, you know, one, one's brain, if you will, behaves differently in that case. Uh, we don't really have a clear explanation for that. And that's just the ambiguity that is very usual in, in psychiatry as a field. Right. But these medications, how do they work or how are they supposed to work? Well, so, you know, antipsychotic medications have been around for, you know, 50, 60 years at this point. Throughout, you know, pretty much up until the 1990s, the only real tool we had to determine how medications would work uh, would be receptor binding studies that are able to tell us, well, this particular chemical binds to certain receptors in the brain. And these receptors that we think are relevant to psychiatric disorders include things like catecholamines, like serotonin and dopamine or norepinephrine. So most of what we knew through the 80s was based on these receptor binding studies. And so from that kind of research, we know that all antipsychotics currently on the market involve the dopaminergic system, usually as antagonists of dopamine at a specific receptor subtype. Some of the newer agents interact with dopamine, with the dopaminergic system in slightly different ways. But for the most part, all antipsychotics have some dopaminergic role. Now, there happen to be a couple different antipsychotics uh, coming out probably in the next couple of years that act through distinct mechanisms. And that's sort of an exciting new area because we really haven't had a novel drug that act in a, in a different way, you know, ar arguably ever, uh, you know, since the 1950s, since the original uh, drugs were developed. Now, I want to say that just because a drug binds to dopamine receptors or blocks dopaminergic uh, um, transmission, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how the drug works. And so, you know, I mentioned that the receptor models were the predominant model through the 90s. Over the past couple of decades, I think we have, you know, learned a lot more in terms of the science of psychiatric disorders through genetic studies, through functional imaging, uh, through our ability to look at downstream effects so that, you know, it's less a question of, you know, nobody at this point in time thinks that simplistically that schizophrenia, for example, is caused by an excess of dopamine. 
and the dopamine blocking drugs are, you know, how you treat schizophrenia. It's more now we're looking at what are the downstream effects, what are second messenger effects, what are effects on uh, mRNA and, and, and gene expression. Um, but once again, it's not like I can tell you, well, here's what exactly happens in part because that may be very different from one individual to another. Right, but there's got to be some concordance. Otherwise, so many people wouldn't have schizophrenia or different aspects of it. Well, I think that's been the great hope that one day that we'll figure out what that what that concordance, to, to borrow your word, is. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we're, we're just simply not there yet. Well, so okay, so it doesn't seem like in part that an excess of dopamine is the cause of this or one of the factors that contributes to it. So is it an excess production or is it a inability to clear dopamine and either recycle it or, there, or reuse it? There's certainly some evidence of uh, increased presynaptic release. So that's probably one of one of the best sources of evidence. On the other hand, the dopamine, the so-called dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia has been challenged through the years because there are very clear arrangements, if you will, of the dopaminergic system, you know, among people who have schizophrenia. There is some evidence of excess presynaptic release. And I'll say that, you know, partly the way that so-called dopamine hypothesis first came about was number one, the observation that symptoms improved in the setting of dopamine blocking drugs, the antipsychotic medications, and also the sort of reverse observation that drugs or, yeah, you know, drugs that increase dopaminergic transmission, like cocaine or methamphetamines, can cause psychotic symptoms uh, de novo. So that's sort of the, the level of initial observation that led to this idea of the dopamine hypothesis. What we now understand is, you know, couple things. One is these medications aren't just acting dopaminergically. They have other relevant receptor binding uh, activities. They also have, as I suggested before, a number of different downstream effects that you know, we're just beginning to understand. So again, that's, that's just sort of the the ambiguity and, and, and you know, heterogeneity that's uh, typical in schizophrenia. Now, I will also say that psychiatry gets a lot of you know, flack for this sometimes. You know, people will say, well, see, psychiatric disorders don't exist because you can't tell me, you know, what in the brain is wrong with someone. And again, to use an example of migraine headache, we don't really know the answer to that. Why did why do people get migraine headaches? We have a some idea about the pathophysiology related to you know, vascular um uh cerebrovascular you know, spasm, for example. But we don't know that for certain. We don't know why that happens in some individuals that, and uh, others not. And so that's, you know, that's sort of what's different in medicine. You know, if we were to put medicine, you know, under the umbrella of science, we're really working backwards. We're working backwards from these observations and then trying to figure out, you know, how can we explain this phenomenologically? Um, and, you know, psychiatry is is kind of in, in the stone age uh, of that process. Hmm. Okay. Um, what, what do you think is going to be possible? What breakthroughs does it seem like maybe you're close to uh, to coming to treat schizophrenia or understand it better? Well, you know, I, I tend to be a little pessimistic about that, but that's, that's sort of just the person I am. But it's in part that, you know, things haven't really changed over the past 50 or 60 years since we've had antipsychotic medications. You know, when I was, uh, I did my undergraduate training at MIT and, you know, one of my mentors there always said, you know, science is slow, but sometimes fast. And so, you know, the remarkable thing about scientific discovery is, you know, a lot of it does come from, you know, slogging through experiments and, you know, focused research over time. But a lot of it comes from sort of eureka moments or accidental discoveries. 
So on the one hand, part of me is pessimistic that there's going to be any major breakthrough in, in my career lifetime. Uh, on the other hand, I perfectly acknowledge that you know somebody could stumble upon something tomorrow. I also did allude to the fact that there are a number of new medications that are coming on the market. And this is after years of drug development where drug companies and, and researchers have been trying to develop medications with different mechanisms that might be effective. And that that work has been mostly fruitless. And that's where some of my pessimism comes from. But on the other hand, um, because we're probably going to get some of these newer medications on the market in the next couple of years, I think that will significantly add to our understanding of the illness and, and you know, hopefully will expand our ability to treat it. Okay. Very good. Uh, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work uh, if they have questions and want to know more? Well, I do have a website, drjoepierre.com, D-R-J-O-E-P-I-E-R-R-E.com. And that's probably the best way uh, of anything. Oh, and I'm also on uh, Twitter at, at psychunseen, P-S-Y-C-H-U-N-S-E-E-N, psychunseen. Very good. Well, Joe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and uh, explaining all this. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.